Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, February the 6th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Legislators Tour River Hills. Proposed AEA reform would transfer ownership of school property to state. It's written by Maria Kuyper of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Five state legislators visited River Hills School on Friday to see how a bill to reform Iowa's area education agencies would affect students. The Cedar Falls School serves 80 students with developmental disabilities from 29 school districts. Senators Bill Dotzler, a Democrat from Waterloo, Eric Giddens, a Democrat from Cedar Falls, and Sandy Salmon, a Republican from Janesville, as well as Representatives Jerome Amos Jr., a Democrat from Waterloo, and Bob Cressing, a Democrat from Cedar Falls, toured the building. All five represent areas within Central Rivers AEA's 18-county area. The visit comes two days after a bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds regarding AEAs did not advance out of a House Education Subcommittee. The bill would allow schools to opt out of AEA special education services and seek them from another party. An earlier version would have required AEAs to focus solely on special education. The amended bill could still advance, but has been put on pause. Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull, chair of the House subcommittee, said he wants to have further conversations before any action is taken. The proposed bill would send federal and state special education funds directly to schools, which could decide whether to contract with the AEAs or a third party. Currently, AEAs receive all of that funding. The bill would keep a $35 million property tax levy schools use to pay for AEA services in place, but remove a $33 million property tax stream that funds the agency's media services. Media services include digital resources, libraries, print and production, and technology. Technology is a staple in most classrooms at River Hills. The majority of the technology is augmentative or alternative communication devices, or AACs. These devices help students who don't speak or have difficulty speaking. At River Hills, more than 50 students use such technology. Resembling an iPad or tablet, the technology can have communication boards, pictures, symbols, or drawings. It can be as simple as a laminated page of pictures or as advanced as a digitized speech output device. Students can use their devices at home as well as in the community or at a future job. The bill also would bar AEAs from owning property, transferring ownership to the Iowa Department of Administrative Services. Central Rivers has its own printing services in-house, which is essential to the operation of our literacy curriculum, according to Andrew Voss, an instructional support teacher. He said every child has an individual learning program, resulting in different materials for every student. The school, along with a storage building in Clear Lake owned by Central Rivers, holds equipment used by children with physical disabilities such as wheelchairs or gait trainers. At River Hills, there is an estimated $40,000 of this equipment in just one room. Some of the contraptions cost upward of $3,000, so the school loans devices to families. River Hills principal Kelsey Baker said AEA-owned buildings are critical. 
a lot of our students here, they would need their own classrooms, their own teacher, their own paraeducator, all kinds of equipment, and purchase curriculum for one student, she said. We are able to substantially educate these students at a very economical rate, which is another service to school districts. The school also provides educational consultants, speech and language pathologists, a psychologist, a nurse, physical and occupational therapist, work experience coordinators, adaptive physical education teachers, an audiologist, an instructional support teacher, and access to hearing, vision, and mobility specialists. Cedar Falls resident Stacy Ward brought her teenage son Tim to school Friday. Tim has autism and has been utilizing AEA resources since he was five years old. Tears brimmed in her eyes as she talked about her family's journey with special education resources. I feel that this particular bill right now is being pushed too fast, Ward said. I mean, they haven't even consulted with key individuals. They just have their agenda, I believe, and they're not taking into consideration the overall impact this could cause families. Along with the education provided to her son, she said Central Rivers provides her with resources to save money on services such as therapy. At age 17, River Hills is preparing Tom for a world outside of the school with and the workforce. Ward said it is unknown what could happen to his job coaches and extra support staff if the bill becomes law. It's all up in the air, she said. All these people are so critical in the whole cog of this whole process to make sure that, you know, they're there for maximum benefits of the students. She doesn't know where Tim would be if it wasn't for Central Rivers and River Hills. Kresig, who heard Ward's story, said keeping the school as it is is critical. We need to make sure this still functions because of the needs that families deal with, he said. This facility helps them improve their lives and make their lives better. Salmon, the only Republican to attend, said the tour was eye-opening and that it could be worth the time for her colleagues to visit a special education facility. When the bill was rolled out, she sent her analysis of the bill to superintendents she represents and asked for their thoughts. Salmon said she definitely offered some input to the Education Committee. She expects the bill to undergo more changes. She hopes there will be further conversations that involve the AEAs and school districts. I don't see how we can do it without their input to make sure that it's going to be as a seamless experience, she said. You don't want any student to ever know that this thing ever happened. That's my goal. While she doesn't want students to notice a difference in services, she believes the bill is still needed to be brought up, citing Reynolds' idea on oversight and realigning salaries. I don't think she's totally off in left field about some of the things that she's seeing, she said. I think we need to consider her concerns as well. On Saturday, area Democratic legislators, Representatives Timmy Brown Powers, Kressig, and Amos, and Senators Dotzler and Giddens will hold an event for the public to speak about the proposed bill from 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the Central Rivers Building, 1521 Technology Parkway in Cedar Falls. In a related story, AEA bill stalled in-house for now. GOP legislators are still hoping to change how services are delivered. 
This is written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier Des Moines Bureau. Governor Kim Reynolds' bill to overhaul the state's area education agencies won't move forward in the House, the chair of the Chamber's Education Committee said last week. Republican Representative Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, the committee chair, halted the bill's advancement after a subcommittee meeting on Wednesday, saying he wanted further conversations before taking action. In a Facebook post the next day, Wheeler said the bill will not move forward in the committee. The most recent version of Reynolds's proposed bill would give schools the ability to opt out of the AEA's special education services and seek them from another party. She said the change is necessary as the test scores of Iowa students with disabilities have lagged and the state spends a comparatively high amount on these students without seeing top-level results. We need to just step back and start to ask some of those questions with the overall objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education that they deserve and see better outcomes, Reynolds told reporters last week. Though the House bill has stalled, Wheeler and Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley said they are still interested in working on legislation to address special education in Iowa. I have felt compelled to work this issue because this is about our kids and we have to get it right if we are to make changes, Wheeler said in the post. I believe we absolutely have room to improve and we need to continue to have those discussions. I think it's vastly important to have all the stakeholders come together, work through this, get consensus and move forward. Wheeler did not immediately respond to a request for further comment on Friday. Dozens of people, including school administrators and parents of students with disabilities, urged lawmakers to slow down on the bill in a pair of meetings on Wednesday, warning that the bill could weaken opportunities for special education in the state. A number of superintendents spoke in favor of the bill, saying they want to have control over the special education funding. The bill, Senate Study Bill 3073, passed out of a Senate subcommittee on Wednesday. The Republicans on the panel, though, said the governor's bill was not sufficient and would likely see changes. Grassley told reporters Thursday that the majority party agrees they need to do something, but suggested Reynolds's bill would not be the final product. We want to try to put a plan together that we feel best suits our school districts that we all represent, he said. We're obviously going to work with some of the framework that the governor laid out, but we also want to sit down with the stakeholders and see what pieces maybe we can do that fit what we're trying to get to. Democrats voted against the proposal in both chambers Wednesday. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confers, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, said Thursday that Republicans are in disarray after they failed to agree on the AEA proposal. As we watch arguments continue to happen in broad daylight in front of us while they disagree on where to go, we are united in proposing our legislation and fighting for everyday Iowans, Confirst said. Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. Under Reynolds's proposal, federal and state funding for special education would be sent directly to schools who could then decide whether or not to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, schools would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities and could obtain that instruction from a third party like a private company. 
AEAs would still be able to provide the other education and media services they now provide if schools request it and it is approved by the Department of Education. A property tax levy funding the AEA's media services would be cut. The bill would also centralize much of the oversight and operations of the AEA under the Department of Education. The department's director would be in charge of appointing AEA executive directors, combining or dissolving AEAs, and approving AEA's budget proposals. The bill includes a provision to increase the starting salary for teachers to $50,000. Teachers with at least 12 years of experience would be paid at least $62,000. Grassley said he wants a reset in the conversation around the bill, but thinks House Republicans can preserve a number of provisions in Reynolds' proposal. He said he supports the provisions around accountability for the AEAs, but wants to make sure school districts and parents have certainty around the services they will receive. Grassley said the fee-for-service model in the governor's proposal, which would allow schools to contract with the AEAs and opt in or out of different services, could be preserved as Republicans work on a new proposal. I think we can do that, but we just want to make sure that there's certainty over the next several years for school districts, and like I said, more importantly, certainly for parents receiving these services, because right now we feel that's one piece that's being lost in the conversation, he said. In an appearance on Iowa Press on Iowa PBS on Friday, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, a Republican from Grimes, said he's optimistic about finding a compromise on the bill and the Senate planned to continue working on the governor's proposal. I don't know about starting from scratch because it is a totally different bill now than it was three weeks ago, he said, but we're going to have to continue the conversation and make the case why the reforms are necessary if it's going to become law. Des Moines area Democratic lawmakers said in a forum on the AEA bill on Friday that the emails and activism from people opposed to the bill has been effective in helping slow it down and preventing Republicans from getting behind the proposal. Democratic Senator Sarah Trone Garriott of Waukee said opposition from House Republicans is the most likely way the bill will be stopped. When you speak up, it's a powerful thing, so don't ever think it's just not enough or it's too little, said Representative Mary Madison, a Democrat from West Des Moines. But together, we're a powerhouse, so come to the Capitol, use those public forums, and continue your emails. In another story from the front page of The Courier today, WSR Board selects Hill as district's new chief. North Tama leader goes to Waverly Shell Rock July 1st. This is written by Holly Hudson Hill, and the dateline is Waverly. The Waverly Shell Rock Community School District has named David Hill as its next superintendent. Hill said he received a phone call Thursday evening with a job offer. I accepted during that same phone call, he said. I am elated. I couldn't be happier to have this opportunity. I'm honored to have been selected as the next superintendent of one of Iowa's premier school districts, Hill said in an email In an earlier news release, the district employs a talented staff, has great facilities and outstanding program, and enjoys tremendous community support. I look forward to collaborating with the board, community, administration, and staff to take Waverly Shell Rock to the next level. It's a great day to be a Go Hawk. 
I think one of the highest priority items for me is to get into the system and listen and learn about the current situation, Hill said in a phone interview. I have no specific agenda or changes right now. This is a school system that is doing many things right that have led to outstanding student achievement and community support. We'll look at how we can capitalize on those things. I do know there are plans to revisit the district's strategic plan and vision and mission. We will get started in early in earnest with that in the fall when school starts, working with a cross-section of the district to participate in that. It's hard to say how long that will take, he said. We need to be open to following the process. It is important to know who you are as a district and what you believe in and why you believe in it. Charlene Wyatt Sauer, Waverly Shell Rock Schools Board of Education president, commented on behalf of board members. It's with great pleasure we welcome David Hill as our new superintendent of Waverly Shell Rock Community Schools. David's proven experience and collaborative leadership style with a vision for student success makes him the right leader for our district, Sauer said in the release. We have full confidence in David to lead the future of public education at WSR, especially as we begin this fall the process of strategic planning and long-term assessment for our school district. This is an exciting time to envision and plan what academic achievement means for our children and our communities. We appreciate the staff, student, and community participation during this process and their input. As superintendent of the North Tama County Community Schools, Hill has helped improve the district's financial position while adding programming and new student opportunities in addition to leading a successful bond referendum election with 65% supermajority voter approval. Simultaneously, Hill served as the shared superintendent of the Gladbrook Rhinebeck Community Schools from 2016 to 2020. Hill is certified in ALICE, Alert lockdown information counter evacuate training and is a member of the central rivers area education agency's superintendent advisory committee he holds an education specialist degree from drake university and a pk through 12 superintendent certification hill said it will be bittersweet to leave the north tama community school district Informing people here has been a very emotional experience for me, he said. I love this school district as I've served it over the last nine years, and I've told them over the next five months and even beyond, I will do anything I reasonably can to help the district succeed. The future is bright for North Tama. This is a wonderful school district. Hill does plan to relocate his family to the Waverly Shell Rock District. I do intend to use some of my accumulated vacation days to do some things within the Waverly Shell Rock District with the blessing of the school board and current superintendent, of course. Hill said he plans to attend some school board meetings. As my schedule allows, I hope to attend some school events this spring and make more introductions in the district. Board members worked with Grundmeyer Leader Services to conduct the search. Hill interviewed with stakeholder groups consisting of students, parents, teachers, and community members on Thursday. Hill will officially begin leading the district effective July 1. Waverly Shell Rock is one of the top school districts in the state, he said. I'm glad to become a part of it. Next is an article entitled Gunfire Incidents Probed. It's written by Jeff Reinitz. Waterloo police are investigating two reports of gunfire over the weekend. No injuries were reported, but in one incident, a bullet pierced an occupied vehicle passing within inches of the driver's legs, police said. 
Officers said the victim was in a Chevrolet Traverse in the area of Burton Avenue and West Donald Street around 8.32 a.m. on Saturday when people in a gold-colored vehicle began shooting at him. The victim fled and notified police. That was the second shooting incident on Saturday. The first came at about 12.05 a.m. in the 800 block of Wellington Street. Witnesses reported hearing about 10 gunshots, and officers found numerous spent shell casings in the area. No injuries or damages were reported. It wasn't clear if the shootings were related. And residents displaced after fire, also written by Jeff Reinitz. Officials are investigating a fire that damaged a Waterloo apartment building on Sunday. No one was home at the apartment at 130 Leland Avenue when the blaze broke out shortly before 1 p.m. Crews with Waterloo Fire Rescue saw smoke coming from the building. A former single-family residence split into three apartments when they arrived. The fire was contained to the room where it started and it was extinguished. Other parts of the apartment had heat and smoke damage, which displaced the residents pending repairs. The cause of the fire hasn't been determined and is under investigation by the city fire marshal. Next, we have an article entitled Salvation Army Food Programs Making Changes. The Salvation Army of Waterloo slash Cedar Falls is temporarily adjusting its community food programs in response to an unexpected staffing shortage. The noon community meal will be offered from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Monday and Friday only. The Perishable Goods Pantry will continue to be offered from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Thursday as donations, volunteer, and staffing allow. The most up-to-date information about the programs will be available on the organization's Facebook page at SAWaterlooCF. The Salvation Army's current food programs manager is leaving her position for medical reasons. This job has been the honor of my lifetime, and I knew God's plan for the Salvation Army and the people will serve, we serve will continue for the Cedar Valley, said Kathy Ford. The organization is seeking a new food programs manager. Candidates must be available from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Monday through Friday and either possess or have the ability to obtain a food manager certificate. Candidates must be familiar with commercial kitchens and cooking for 150 to 200 individuals per meal. A full job description is available on Indeed.com. The temporary service adjustments will be in place until a food program manager is hired. Additional adjustments may be necessary. The Salvation Army remains committed to meeting the needs of the community, including the need for accessible and nutritious food. Now here's some Metro briefs. First, no school Friday. All Waterloo Community School District schools will be closed on Friday due to district-wide professional development. Next, Hart Honored with National Award. The U.S. Conference of Mayors gave Mayor Quinton Hart an award during its annual meeting in January. The Mayoral Service Award was presented as part of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission's Dream Keeper Initiative, which states it was created to foster hope and inspire African Americans to dream boldly. Beginning his fifth term, Hart is the longest-serving mayor in Waterloo and the first African American to hold that office. During his acceptance speech, Hart highlighted Waterloo Fiber, the city's new broadband initiative. Next, $5,000 grant supports LSI Child Services. Lutheran Services in Iowa received $5,000 from the Thompson Family Foundation in support of early childhood services. LSI has delivered early education 
early childhood services for more than 25 years. Services are offered in 29 counties across the state, and the agency hopes to expand services to more families. As one of Iowa's largest human services agencies, LSI impacts thousands of Iowans annually through child abuse prevention, services for families and youth in crisis, services for people with disabilities, and immigrant and refugee services. It is nationally accredited and serves people of all ages, abilities, religions, sexes, gender identities, national origins, ethnicities, race, and sexual orientation. Symphony to celebrate Gershwin. The Wartburg Community Symphony will observe the 100th anniversary of George Gershwin's iconic Rhapsody in Blue at 2 p.m. February the 17th in Wartburg College's Newman Auditorium. The concert will showcase pianist Madeline Rogers and clarinetist Eric Wachman. A pre-concert talk will begin at 1 p.m. in Newman Auditorium. Tickets are $20 for adults and free for Wartburg College students and youth ages 18 and younger. Available online at www.wartburg.edu slash symphony and at the door. Rogers will solo with the orchestra for Rhapsody in Blue. Wachman will perform clarinet concerto. The orchestra and the Iowa Bop Collective will collaborate on several pieces. Rogers visiting, is a visiting assistant professor of piano at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. She regularly performs with the Amadeus Lex and is an active recitalist. Wachman is a professor of music at Wartburg College. He has performed extensively with professional orchestral, chamber, and jazz ensembles in North America and abroad. He is principal clarinetist with the Waterloo Cedar Falls Symphony and plays bass clarinet with the New Hampshire Museum Festival Orchestra. Next, Denver Library talk on Rosie Riveters. The Denver Public Library will host Iowa author and historian Linda Betzinger McCann for a program at 2 p.m. February the 20th at the library. McCann will discuss her new book, The Rosie Riveters of Iowa. The program is free and refreshments will be served. Pre-registration is not needed. Copies of the book will be available to purchase. Rosie the Riveter was a promotional campaign to encourage women to fill jobs in factories during World War II. McCann will share the memories of the 35 Rosie Riveters she interviewed for the book. McCann is an author of numerous nonfiction books about Iowa history, including Prisoners of War in Iowa and Prohibition in Iowa. For more information, call the library at area code 319-984-5140 for more information. Now, Uncommon Student Award offered. Deadline is April 1st to submit applications for the annual Herbert Hoover Uncommon Student Award, a scholarship program for Iowa high school juniors. As many as 15 students will be chosen for the program, with each receiving a $1,500 scholarship. In addition, four $10,000 scholarships are awarded for study at an accredited two- or four-year college or university anywhere in the United States. This is the 27th year for the award. Applicants submit a proposal for a project they want to accomplish, which relates to Herbert Hoover. Hoover was known as a great humanitarian, entrepreneur, engineer, and loved technology and the environment. Students are not evaluated on the basis of grades, test scores, essays, or financial need. Students are selected each year based on their standard, their stated project goal and detailed plans to reach that goal. 
Finalists spend a required expense-paid weekend in West Branch, just east of Iowa City, during the summer between their junior and senior years. During the weekend, they receive mentoring and assistance developing their projects to aid in their success. Time is also spent behind the scenes at the Hoover at the Hoover Presidential Library and Museum to help students become more familiar with Hoover's ideals regarding humanitarianism and public service. In November of their senior year, finalists make presentations about their projects at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library Museum. At that time, each student receives the $1,500 scholarship and four are chosen to receive a $10,000 scholarship. The award, funded entirely by private donations, is sponsored by the Hoover Presidential Foundation, a nonprofit support group for the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library Museum and Herbert Hoover National Historic Site in West Branch. Information and applications may be found at www.uncommonstudent.org. And Composting Council President Named the United States Composting Council has announced Jennifer Trent, a program manager at the University of Northern Iowa's Iowa Waste Reduction Center, as the new president of the board of directors. Trent specializes in food waste re- reduction, compost, composting, and environmental assistance. She has been heavily involved in implementing and coordinating multiple food waste reduction efforts for the IWRC since 2012. Her involvement with the USCC dates back to 2016. She recently served as the organization's vice president. The USCC is described as a robust, action-packed, forward-thinking organization that advances compost manufacturing, compost utilization, and organics recycling to benefit its members, society, and the environment. UNI's Iowa Waste Reduction Center has provided environmental services including technical assistance and industry training as well as research and development for more than 30 years. For more information, visit iwrc.uni.edu. You're listening to the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Today's opinion piece is written by Kevin Frazier, who is an assistant professor at the Crump College of Law at St. Thomas University in Miami Gardens, Florida. He previously clerked for the Montana Supreme Court, and he wrote this for Fulcrum. And it is entitled, Nation Needs Right to Reality for 20% in News Deserts. When you're stuck in the wilderness, Bear Gryllis wouldn't suggest you prioritize searching for Wi-Fi. Instead, survival experts would likely tell you to focus on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In other words, you should be trying to address physiological needs before you start thinking about self-actualization. There's also a hierarchy of democratic needs, but it's been forgotten by modern advocates of a more participatory and responsive democracy. Before explaining further, I should make it clear that I wholly support efforts to improve our democracy through thoughtful changes such as open primaries and campaign finance reform. I applaud and encourage those individuals and organizations working on such causes. But I'm increasingly concerned that we're putting Wi-Fi before water. 
More specifically, I'm concerned about the 48 million adults, or 23%, who struggle to read and the 70 million people, about 20%, who live in or may soon live in a news desert. Absent addressing literacy and access to hard news, the first two levels of the hierarchy of democratic needs, electoral reforms will not be as impactful as intended. Let's start with literacy and why it's the first step toward democratic actualization. In a democracy, the people are the depository of the ultimate powers of the society, according to Thomas Jefferson. If we think them not enlightened enough to exercise their control with wholesome discretion, he continued, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion by education. Jefferson wasn't alone in, in tying education and, by extension, literacy to the capacity of we, the people, to fulfill our democratic responsibilities. According to historian Alan Taylor, the, the founders viewed education as a collective social benefit essential for free government to endure. In short, democratic governance places power in the people but to fully exercise that power, individuals must have the requisite skills and knowledge. The alternative, failing to empower individuals to make informed choices about how to wield their power, is akin to giving someone a tennis racket without telling them the rules of the game and teaching them how to serve. How to exercise that discretion is also contingent on knowing what choices are available. That's where access to hard news comes in. Hard news conveys information important to citizens' ability to vote, evaluate policies, and identify issues in their communities. The founders addressed this democratic need by creating an expansive postal system and subsidizing the production and dissemination of newspapers that contained more hard news than advertisements. Today, in contrast, nearly a fifth of Americans live in a news desert, a community either rural or urban with limited access to the sort of credible and comprehensive news and information that feeds democracy at the grassroots level. To make matters worse, the creation and spread of AI-generated content has the potential to pollute our information ecosystem, making it harder to find democratic democratically salient information. That's why I've called for a right to reality that requires subsidies for local and reliable news institutions. This financial boost would make quality journalism more available in every part of the country and, as a result, would dilute the effect of content meant to distract rather than inform. How best to fully address these needs is a topic for another column. The key takeaway for now is that literacy and access to hard news must be at the top of our reform agenda because they are at the foundation of the hierarchy of democratic needs. The sooner we focus our resources and attention on these foundational issues, the sooner we can build larger and more inclusive coalitions and movements. And again, this piece was written by Kevin Frazier, an assistant professor at the Crump College of Law at St. Thomas University in Miami. And now we turn to today's obituaries and remember Mary Jean Fitzpatrick. Surrounded by her loving family, Mary Jane Fitzpatrick of Olwine passed away on Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024 at Mercy One Hospital in Olwine. A rosary service will begin at 3.30 p.m. on Sunday, February the 4th, 2024 at Geilenfeld Brunner Funeral Home in Old Wine. 
Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Mass of Christian burial will begin at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February the 5th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Old Wine with Father Ray Atwood officiating. Interment will be in Woodlawn Cemetery at Old Wine. Memorials may be directed to the family for later designation. Next, we remember Frank Henry Reintz. Frank Henry Reintz, age 94, of Shell Rock, Iowa, passed away on February the 2nd at the Waverly Health Center in Waverly. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February the 6th at Faith Lutheran Church in Shell Rock with Pastor Joel Becker officiating. Burial will follow in Riverside Cemetery in Shell Rock with military rites at the grave by the Avery Slight American Legion Post 393 of Shell Rock. There will be visitation on Tuesday from 9 a.m. to the time of the service at the church. The service will be live-streamed on Faith Lutheran Church's YouTube and Facebook pages. Memorials may be directed to Cedar Valley Hospice or to the Avery Slight American Legion Post 393 of Shell Rock. Now we remember Michael Paul Berry age 83, of Waterloo, who died at Pinnacle Specialty Care in Cedar Falls. He was born in Dysert, son of Paul and Alice Berger Berry. He served in the U.S. Navy and was a sergeant on the Cedar Falls Police Department. Visitation from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, February the 8th, 2024, at the Dahl Van Hovey Schoof Funeral Home in Cedar Falls. In lieu of flowers, memorials to St. Jude's or the National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Fund. Full obituary can be found at www.dahlfuneralhome, and that's D-A-H-L, funeralhome.com. And we remember Arlen C. Benfang, age 83, who passed away peacefully on February the 3rd, 2024, surrounded by his sons and grandkids after a courageous battle with cancer. Funeral services are 11 a.m. Saturday, February the 10th, 2024, at Lock on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street, Waterloo, with burial at Rose Hill Cemetery, Grundy Center. Visitation will take place from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 9th, 2024, at Lock on 4th. Memorials may be directed to the family. Lock on 4th is handling arrangements and can be reached at area code 319-233-6138, and they are assisting. The now let's move over to the sports page, and we'll start with a high school boys wrestling article entitled bon Don Bosco Reels in Another 1A State Jewels Championship. It's written by Jim Nelson. Defeat can be humbling, even for a powerhouse program like Don Bosco of Gilbertville. In early December, the Dons lost four duels at the Battle of Waterloo. To say the least, Don Bosco was humbled. However, the Dons had perspective. On that weekend, Don Bosco wrestled for most of the tournament without state champion Kyler Knack, state medalist Landon Fernandez, or two of their four phenom freshmen, Kyler Salas and Ethan Christopher. One of those losses came against Auburnett, 51 to 36, or excuse me, 51 to 26. Saturday night in the Class 1A state dual finals at Extreme Arena, it was the Pirates who stood in the way of Don Bosco. And on this night, the story was different as Christopher, Knack, Fernandez, and Salas all took to the mat and all won. The end result, Don Bosco captured its fourth consecutive 1A state dual title and 14th overall with a 45-31 win over all Burnett. The first time we wrestled, we had a bunch of guys out, and they had a few guys out too, Ortner said. We didn't use that as an excuse, but I thought it could be a different duel when everybody was there. 
Really proud of our kids tonight. After the two teams split the first four matches and it was a 12-12 tie, the Pirates took the lead with a pin by Rowdy Neighbor and a 3-1 win by third-ranked Tayton Kofel over fourth-ranked Jackson Larson at 126. The team continued to trade wins, and it was 27-18 when Christopher scored a third-period fall over ranked Dawson Becker at 144 pounds that turned the tide in the Don's favor. Alburnett got a pin at 150, but the meat of the Don's order was coming up, and it produced. Kyler Knack had a pin, Andrew Kimball had a pin, Caden Knack a decision, and Fernandez finished it with a pin. Kimball's pin put the Dons ahead for the first time, 36-31, and Knack's decision sealed the championship. Our kids fought, both teams fought, and that is a great thing to see both teams battle hard, Ortner said. I think we just had to get everybody healthy, improve throughout the year, and I think we have gotten a lot better since November. Overall, really happy with our kids and for our kids. The victory sent the three Don seniors, Caden Knack, Kimball, and Fernandez, home champs for the fourth straight time. That trio will try to lead Don Bosco to their sixth straight 1A traditional title in two weeks in Des Moines, but they were willing to bask in state dual title number four Saturday. It's pretty special, Kimball said. It is not easy, and it's not done very often. It has a special place, not just in my heart, but all the seniors' hearts. It's something really cool. After fighting past Jessup in its opener, 44-18, the Dons were in complete control in their semifinal match against second-seeded Wilton uh, with a 45-20 victory. Don Bosco won the first four matches, including a huge swing win at 285 from Hudson Ortner and a fall from Hayden Schwab over fifth-ranked Liam Adelfinger at 106 pounds to build an 18-0 lead. Don Bosco put the match away with wins from Jackson Larson at 126, a 7-0 win from Youngblood at 132 over third-ranked Brody Brisker, and then a fall from Ethan Christopher at a th- 138 that made it 30-11. to 11. Ty Christensen had a big major decision at 150, and Knack and Kimball each had bonus wins before the Dons forfeited at 175 with the duel already decided. The 1A field had three other Northeast Iowa squads in it, and in a battle for bragging rights of Buchanan County, Jessup and Wapsie Valley faced off in the fifth-round match. The Jayhawks beat the Warriors for the second time by a final of 45-27. to The experience of tournament and its value, Jessup head coach Matt Gross said, was unquantifiable. Set the standard, right? Gross asked. We had a tough first-round draw in Bosco, but I thought we wrestled really well in that duel. The biggest thing after that was all our guys bounced back. Just a really special time, and man, we are having fun. I love that we got to the opportunity, and what a great way to go out, win some matches, and show we belonged here. Jessup finished with a 22-3 dual record. Nashua Plainfield took fourth. The Huskies opened with a win over fourth-seeded Lake Mills, but dropped a 47-21 decision to Alburnett in the semifinals by losing to, before losing to Wilton 48-30 for third. When the regional dual pairings were released, Waverly Shellrock was not expected to make it. 
The three-time defending champions in 3A, however, overcome some hurdles to make it, but couldn't quite clear the same hurdles in an 0-3 day. But on, on a squad that has just two seniors among its 14 starters, some uneven performances happen. We did overcome some hurdles to even compete here, WSR head coach Eric Whitcomb said. That was big. I think the next thing was staying hungry. It's you got the opportunity, so let's make the most of the opportunity. And I think if there's a takeaway from today was that there was some complacency at times. Defending champion Osage dropped a thrilling semifinal to Sergeant Bluff Luton, 36-33, in a duel that was tied 33-all heading into the final match. The Green Devil head coach Brent, Brent Jennings told his fellow 2A coaches in the seating meeting Wednesday that the tournament was up for grabs. I even said that in our seating meeting to the other coaches that there was a lot of parity in 2A, Jennings said. Anybody could beat anybody on a given day, and that happened. If you slipped up or had a math, bad match not go your way here or there, it's going to be close. Osage rebounded to finish third with a 44-28 win over Mount Vernon. The Green Devils' chase for their six state duels and a repeat was thwarted by the Warriors, who matched them. Big win for win. Big win. Osage jumped out to a 15-0 lead, including pins at 215 and 285 from Ledger, Nels, and Mueller. Mueller needed just eight seconds to pin Mario Rangel. But beginning at 106, the Warriors win, won the next five bouts, getting two pins, a technical fall, and a major decision to take a 25-15 lead. The Green Devils won three of the next four, getting falls from Blake Fox at 138, Anders Kittleson at 150, and Tucker Strangle at 157. SBL got big swing win at 144 from Dalton Van Wy over Darren Adams, 7-4, and second-ranked Bo Kadem, 157, bumped up to 165 and scored a pin for the Warriors to tie the match at 33-all. That set up a winner-take-all match at 175 where fifth-ranked Xavier Ellington used a first-period takedown and a third-period escape point to beat second-ranked Max Gast 3-0 to give SBL the victory. I'm not going to put on any one kid... Jennings said when asked what needed to happen to reverse the semifinal loss. We had some seniors, some leaders, where that is on their shoulders and it just didn't go their way. It's a team effort. We gave up a few too many bonus points, but in the end, we needed one more win somewhere. The Green Devils finished the season 26-4, and four, and it's five seniors, Kittleson, Darian, Adams, Tucker, Stangle, Gast, and Mueller, finished 5th, 3rd, 1st, and 3rd at the state title, at the state duels in their time. Independence took 6th in 2A, falling to Humboldt 31-30 to on criteria the, in the 5th place match. Next is an article entitled, UNI Has Super Sunday Showdown with ISU. It's written by Ethan Petrick. Chiefs or 49ers? Northern Iowa wrestling head coach Doug Schwab does not give much mind to Super Bowl 58. 
he'd be all right if San Francisco won. The organization has more ties to the Hawkeye State than Kansas City. However, Schwab is focused on another marquee matchup on Sunday, number 18 UNI versus number 4 Iowa State. I know it is Super Bowl Sunday, but dude, we are in the state of Iowa. Schwab said, wrestling, when two in-state schools are going, to me, that is the Super Bowl. When I was a kid, that was as big as the Super Bowl when you had the in-state schools wrestling each other. According to Schwab, the matchup with the Cyclones possesses all the markings of a must-attend duel or a must-see TV at 1 p.m. on Sunday. They have a great team, Schwab said. They have wrestled really, really well this year. We have gotten consistently better. Every time that we have been meeting in my time, there have been battles. Obviously, on paper, we are going to have to beat some guys that we are not supposed to beat. We are going to have to upset some guys. But, like I talked to the team, it's not an upset. You plan on doing it. You are preparing to do. I know I am looking forward to that meet, especially when it is the only in-state meet we get to wrestle. And two days before they face the Cyclones, Schwab and the Panthers look ahead fearlessly at the 1,758-and-a-half-mile trip to Riverside, California for a dual meet with Cal Baptist at 8 p.m. on Friday. If you look at our season, our season has not went to plan, Schwab said. If you would have drawn it up, you would have never had it how we started our season. We manage and deal with those things really well. Ideally, we are not having to do that, but how the schedule worked out and the date we got to work, our guys will not make any excuses. Schwab did add that the travel roster for the matchup with the Lancers may look a little different than a typical travel roster. I looked at some things, and maybe some guys may go out there. Some guys may not, Schwab said. I do not know. I know that all of our guys are like, hey, coach, send me a, send my A out there. I want to go. If I get a chance to go compete for this team, I want to go compete. I am not 100% sure who we are all going to send out there. We are working through that right now. Schwab would be all right at the 49ers won, but he is much more focused on seeing the Panthers pull out two wins this weekend. Broadcast coverage of the duel with Iowa State will be on, available via the Big 12 on ESPN+. Plus. Hopefully the state of Iowa, that is what they are focused on too, Schwab said. Show up, get out to Hilton Coliseum. Make that place loud, real loud and rowdy, because you have two really good teams that are going to scrap from whistle to whistle. In its final weekend of competition prior to the Missouri Valley Conference Championships, the Northern Iowa Swim and Dive Team turned in a banner weekend. In the swimming events, the Panthers racked up seven titles at the Coyote Invite hosted by South Dakota in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. UNI's diving contingent competed in Omaha, winning the Omaha Diving Invite team title. UNI freshman Erica Peters won both the 1-meter and 3-meter individual titles. Anytime you compete well, that helps with confidence, head coach Nick Lakin said. We are just excited. Lakin added that he feels UNI is well positioned to see athletes compete at the highest levels in the MVC championships in Evansville, Indiana on February the 21st through February 24th. On the top end, we are going to compete with anybody, Lakin said. The place we are going to need to get to better is on the depth side. 
we're going to have to make sure our second, third, and fourth athletes are just matching up with what everyone else has going on. UNI head tennis coach Chris Sagers described the Panthers' first road trip of the spring season as frustrating. The Panthers dropped both of their matchups with a 6-1 loss to Creighton on Saturday and a 5-2 loss to Nebraska-Omaha on Sunday. According to Sagers, the tough schedule, UNI played the Blue Jays at 4 p.m. on Saturday and the Mavericks at 9 a.m. on Sunday likely played a factor in the, pro- in the poor performance but did not allow that he that to be an excuse for his team. It did look like we were tired, Sagers said. I do not know. Not ready to go, Omaha. Just steamrolled us in doubles. That just cannot happen. We just got rolled. They were all over us. I made it very clear we needed to step up our game, our energy, and they did. Our players responded well in singles. We started out real well in all six matches. Unfortunately, we only did get two wins out of it. UNI returns to action with a pair of home contests against Northern Illinois at 10 a.m. on Friday and Western Illinois at 1 p.m. on Saturday. We have to play. We have to step up our doubles play, Sagers said, and we have to be more confident on the singles court. That is basically what we need to do. Just have to address those this week. I'm really hoping that Omaha meet served as a wake-up call for us all, including me, that we need to get better. In men's college basketball, UNI offense grinds to a halt as Skid extends. Panthers have lost three straight league games. This is written by Ethan Petrick. Northern Iowa shot just 30.6% from the field as the Panthers dropped a 71-43 decision against Murray State at home on Saturday. The loss extended the Panthers' losing streak to three games while breaking a four-game skid for the Racers. The loss also dropped the Panthers into fifth place in the Missouri Valley Conference standings. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson said the loss was made particularly hard because the Panthers turned in a strong workout the day prior and did not suffer a slow start. We were moving around, Jacobson said. We are guarding them good. We were pretty sharp. All of that stuff in order, and it just got to be the physicality of the game shifted to their side. The physicality shifted to their side, and they played a good game, a good physical game, and they beat us bad. Jacobson said he was not sure if the Panthers' struggles on offense affected their physicality. He also noted that the shift became most apparent in the battle on the glass. The racers out-rebounded the Panthers 38-29, to including 11 of offensive rebounds. We need to get more involved in our defensive rebounding, Jacobson said. We need our guards more involved. Rebounding is a five-person job. The defensive side of it, our numbers are good, but this team has been good there. But we have slid there a little bit. We have to figure out how to get all five guys involved. You could see the shift in those areas, but you could feel it a little bit. Somehow, you have to fight to get that back. The Panthers' shooting woes did not begin until around the 10-minute mark of the first half as UNI shot 42.8% early on, and it took a 13-10 lead with 9.24 to play. However, a pair of field goals from Murray State guard Rob Perry, a three-pointer and a 12-footer from just outside the paint, jump-started a run for the racers, which lasted for the remainder of the half. Over the final nine minutes of the opening frame, Murray State outscored UNI 25-7 as the Panthers shot just 2 of 11 to head to the locker room, facing a 35-18 deficit at the break. 
The Panthers shot just 28% from the field in the first half and 22.2% from the three-point range. Titan Anderson said the Panthers discussed getting things going on the defensive end in an effort to bounce back from their worst half of basketball since shooting 25% from the field and scoring 22 points against South Florida in a 74-65 loss. We thought our offense was going to get clicking a little bit, Anderson said, and we would just have to get a couple stop coming out uh, in that first four minutes. We just have to find ways to keep getting stops. The UNI offense continued to struggle to start the second half. Panthers shot just 1-7 in the first five minutes to fall behind 46-21 by the opening media timeout frame. Murray State outscored UNI 25-22 the rest of the way to seal the 28-point. The Panthers returned to action Wednesday, February the 7th with a home matchup against Missouri State at 7 p.m. The Panthers narrowly beat the Bears 64-62 on January 3rd for their first Valley win of the season. Broadcast coverage of the game will be provided by ESPN Plus and the Panther Sports Radio Network on 93.5 The Mix. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.